G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and this week on The Truth of It, we talk Sonia Kruger, euthanasia, the depressing news about womb transplants, and the good news about school freedom. Welcome to The Truth of It, ACL's weekly newscast on politics and current events. Why? Well, to cut through the fake news and bring you what it says on the tin, which is the truth of it. And we kick off this week with news about Sonia Kruger. What about her, you say? Well, the Nine Network has just come out the other side of a years-long legal case, which all started when Sydney, Sam, Sydney man Sam Ekamawi lodged a complaint in response to on-air comments made by Ms Kruger. Uh, the comments were made in the aftermath of the terror attack in Nice, France, where a Muslim terrorist killed 86 people on Bastille Day by running over them in a truck, a truly tragic event. But after that, of course, everybody got on the bandwagon with comments. Andrew Bolt wrote a column, uh, a piece on Muslim immigration in Europe, and Kruger said something in response to that on air. She said this. She said, personally, I think Andrew Bolt has a point here, that there is a correlation between the number of people who are Muslim in a country and the number of terrorist attacks. Now, I have a lot of very good friends who are Muslim, who are peace-loving, who are beautiful people, but there are fanatics. Personally, I'd like to see it stopped now for Australia because I want to feel safe, as all of our citizens do, when they go out to celebrate Australia Day. Now, when she says it stops, she means Muslim immigration. Uh, so fairly firm stance there. But amidst much softness saying, well, many Muslims are peace-loving, but it's the fanatics that she's concerned about after this attack. Now, she was heavily criticised on air by her co-hosts, David Campbell and Lisa Wilkinson, um, and the criticism was heavy enough that the day after she made the comments, she made another on-air statement, and the on-air statement was to this effect. She said um, she said uh, uh, that she felt Bolt's column made some relevant points, but wants to make it clear that I have a complete respect for people of all races and religions. I acknowledge that my views yesterday may have been extreme. It is a hugely complex issue and sensitive, and it's an issue with no simple answer, and it's an issue that cannot be fully discussed in a short televised segment. Now, here we are two and a half years down the road, uh, and we have this legal matter that went to the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Appeals Tribunal. What did they think of all of this? Now, you've just heard the comments, okay? And I've read them slowly so that we could listen. This is what they said about those comments. The tribunal said that they were vilifying remarks. I quote that. Which amounted to a stereotypical attack on all Muslims in Australia and had the capacity to encourage hatred towards or serious contempt for Australian Muslims by ordinary members of the Australian population. The tribunal said... Her comments went beyond simply a fair report of Andrew Bolt's article. Kruger provided her own views and commentary on the issues, and these additions were not just opinion, they were vilifying remarks in their own right. Ms Kruger could have expressed her comments in a more measured manner to avoid a finding of vilification. For example, she could have referred to the need for Australia to engage in greater security checking of people wishing to migrate who may happen to be Muslims and the need to prevent a drift towards radicalisation amongst Muslims currently in Australia. Blah, blah, blah. Summary is this. Don't talk about Muslims, terrorism and immigration. Uh, Unless, of course, you have the trained tongue of a lawyer uh, or you are a politician and you know how to expertly navigate that fine, meandering line between what is illegal, what is not illegal, what's risky, what's not risky, uh, qualifying everything that you say in just the right way and using precisely the right words. If you can't do that, close your mouth. Now, I just read you Kruger's comments. 
if we as Australians cannot talk about these things as she did, to say that she knows all these peace-loving Muslims, to acknowledge the fact that there is a radical minority, and to say, well, in her mind, the way around it is to stop Muslim immigration. That's a contribution to the debate. I'm not supporting or otherwise that particular comment. But if we can't talk about this in that particular way, then we're in very serious trouble. Um, because do you know what will actually stoke hate and resentment from ordinary Australians? It's actually not Sonia Kruger, despite what the tribunal says. It is, in fact, tribunals like this one, media personalities and politicians who browbeat ordinary Australians as ignorant haters for trying to verbalise in their own voice and with language that they can is accessible to them their own very real and very sincere concerns. Let the people talk. Listen to them. Answer them. Help them. Is that so novel to actually listen and understand what the concern is and then actually go and talk to them and actually either solve the problem or show them clearly how they've misconceived the problem, if indeed they have. Don't insult them, shout them down and ignore them because that's exactly what's going on. Don't punish them with legal process and don't tell them how they can and cannot talk about things and what they can and cannot say. Um, That won't end that well. It breeds tremendous resentment amongst ordinary people who hate political correctness. survey out in the US uh, just the other day, which shows like three quarters of the population or more actually fed up with political correctness and not knowing what they can and can't say. But here's the good news. Say what they like, they didn't get her, because in New South Wales there is no law against religious vilification. In my view, I don't think there should be. There is in Victoria, there is in the ACT, so the concern is this. Where there are laws of that nature, comments as benign as that one, according to this tribunal, are illegal. So much for basic free speech. Keep missing. Um, The next issue on the agenda is euthanasia. And I want to deal with this one once and for all, actually. And that's because the push for euthanasia continues around the country in a whole bunch of jurisdictions. For example, it's going to be legal... Uh, you know, for only the second time in Australia's history. Remember, it was illegal briefly in the Northern Territory in the 90s, and then it went away pretty quickly because uh, the federal government intervened. But in Victoria, it will be legal from June of this year, I'm very sorry to say. But also in Western Australia, there's the Labor government there has commissioned a parliamentary committee to examine the issue, uh, and that committee recently recommended that euthanasia be made legal in that state, and they're expecting a bill to be drafted and put forward in the middle of this year. Um, also in Queensland, an inquiry has just been commissioned Submissions are invited by April the 15th. ACL will certainly submit to that. Um, And among other things, that inquiry is considering euthanasia for Queensland. And, you know, the Victorian legislation provides the following. Let me run you through it. It says that euthanasia is possible with the sign-off of two doctors at the formal request of a patient who will be prescribed a lethal drug, which hasn't been settled, by the way, which drug it is, um, which they can collect at a pharmacy. And believe it or not, they can actually take it at home or they can take it with the assistance of a doctor. And that is possible if the patient has an incurable illness which causes intolerable suffering and they're expected to live less than six months. Now, those are the basic facts, but it will not stop there. And I know that it won't stop there 
And I can guarantee that it won't stop there for two main reasons. The first reason is that to allow euthanasia is to fundamentally reverse the psyche, the psychology of medical care. It is actually, you know, if you say that a valid form of care, a legitimate kind of treatment, genuine medical practice, actual medicine is now to kill someone, that that's valid, then that is to reverse millennia of medical practice. That is to take the do-no-harm principle from the Hippocratic Oath and to throw it out the window, to delete it. And to those who say that euthanasia is already practiced uh, because of the reality that sometimes you can apply medical treatment to a patient and because of the principle of double effect, that treatment may also have the related effect of hastening the death of that patient, I'd say please go and do your research and find out what euthanasia really is because it's that kind of woolly thinking that is setting us right back in this debate. That is not euthanasia. And there's a whole range of reasons why that's not euthanasia. But the most confronting one that I've heard is this. You ask yourself the question, if the patient were to unexpectedly live through a course of treatment, would you kill them anyway? If yes... That's euthanasia. They weren't supposed to survive. If not, then actually it's a cause for celebration that they lived because, of course, the intention was not to kill. The intention was to treat. It was care. It was medicine. There is all the difference in the world between care and killing in our medical psychology and the way we practice medicine today, and there always has been. But I know that this law won't end here because to change the way we think about medicine so fundamentally will definitely result in a ripple effect that will go right through the system. But there's a second reason why I know that this will not stop here and that is because euthanasia laws always change. You know, you think about it. If you do away with that principle that we once called sanctity of life, that bedrock principle I just described, you never intend to kill anyone, well, where do you draw the line and why? Victoria says six months. What about the person who is in intolerable pain, who is suffering every day, who has eight months to live? Why be so, why be so devoid of compassion that you would say that they don't qualify, whereas the six months do? What about the mother who has a 17-year-old daughter and the 17-year-old daughter cries out for the right to die because she is suffering with advanced stages of painful cancer. Why would we be so mean as to say that a 17-year-old is arbitrarily shut out when an 18-year-old is able to make the decision with perfect competency? What about the case of mental illness? Why do we stigmatise mental illness like this? Why do we say that only physical illness qualifies for euthanasia? Hasn't the legitimacy of mental illness been hard fought and won in recent years? And you know what? Those are exactly the arguments that are made once euthanasia is legal. And you know what? The boundaries move. They have to move. We have no firm foundation on which to rest our principles anymore. We've said death is okay. We've said killing is okay. Where does it end? Let's spend some time talking about where it does end. Let's talk about this slippery slope. Do you know in Belgium and the Netherlands, there's two jurisdictions that have had euthanasia for longer than any other in 
the world. And here are some stories. A 25-year-old Belgian woman with borderline personality disorder was euthanized in 2012 at the behest of her parents. The doctor said she did not suffer from depression in the psychiatric sense of the word. So not even mental illness in, in, in the, of, of, of uh, the variety of just depression. But it was more existential, says the doctor. It was impossible for her to have a goal in life. That was her disability. Borderline personality disorder can't have a goal in life. Therefore, he says, her parents came to my office, got on their knees and begged me, please help our daughter to die. And she died at 25. Mark Langerdyke was euthanized at the age of 41 in 2016 because, wait for it, he struggled with alcoholism. Uh, his brother described how Mark sat on a bench in his parents' garden eating ham and cheese sandwiches and soup with meatballs until the doctor arrived at 3.15pm. He drank a glass of wine and smoked a cigarette but turned down a second because, as he said, I'm dying now. And you know they have mobile euthanasia units in the Netherlands who will come to your house to do the deed. The Dutch case of Mrs. Detroyer was recently referred for a second time to the European Court of Human Rights. She was euthanized at 64 because she was depressed. Her treating doctors were not persuaded that her depression was incurable, but she found others who were willing to certify that it was depressed. So much for lifeline, so much for beyond blue. No, we'll kill her. And her son unexpectedly found out about his mother's death while he was at work, had no idea. And Tom, Tom Morty as his name, has become an avid anti-euthanasia campaigner, and he alleges that his mother made a generous donation to the foundation owned by the doctor who finally said she could die because of her depression. 45-year-old twins, Mark and Eddie Vassabam, were blind. And upon hearing that they would also go deaf, they obtained euthanasia in 2013, believing they had nothing left to live for. Disability. And you know, speaking of disability, the first children have been euthanized in Belgium. Three kids. I think the ages were 9, 11 and 17. And in each case, or two of those cases, it was simply because they had disabilities. Children who were disabled. Last year in Holland, a doctor had sedated an elderly female patient suffering from dementia by drugging her coffee. But whilst the lethal drip was inserted, the patient unexpectedly rallied <clears throat> and began to struggle. The doctor called on the patient's family to hold her down whilst she was killed. Now, that uh, caused all sorts of ruckus, actually, at the time. It was referred to a review board. The doctor was let off with a warning, but has since been disciplined. And I believe it's the only case that has actually resulted in such disciplinary measures being taken. But that is harrowing. Well, the 44-year-old, uh, who was euthanized after a botched sex change surgery, left her looking, in her words, like a monster. Uh, or the woman who was euthanized for mental suffering, stemming from her ch history of child sexual abuse. Um, you know, a 2015, speaking of, uh, uh, I mentioned the woman with dementia, there's also a story here of a woman uh, who was euthanized without having requested it at all. The decision was made for her by her family. But a 2015 Belgian report indicated that this was not an isolated case, that in fact one in 60 deaths in Belgium under a GP's care occur without an explicit request from the patient. Last year in the Netherlands, 13 psychiatric patients were euthanized, 49 patients with dementia were euthanized, and in Belgium, the number of euthanasia deaths increased by 250% in the five-year period between 2008 and 2013 alone. And that's before we've even got to the question of mistakes. What about misdiagnosis and errors like that? And you could take the story of Pietro D'Amico, the 62-year-old Italian magistrate whose suicide was facilitated in 2013 by the Dignitas Clinic in Basel, Switzerland. 
Now, D'Amico had been diagnosed by both Italian and Swiss doctors with a life-threatening illness, a diagnosis which turned out upon the subsequent autopsy to be entirely incorrect. And, you know, uh, for outpatients in the United States of America, uh, misdiagnosis affects 5%. That's 12 million misdiagnosis errors every year. What about elder abuse? Well, last week on The Truth of It, I actually talked about a case the case of uh, a Dutch case referred to by Lord Ashbourne in the House of Lords Euthanasia Debates, in which an old man is dying of lung cancer. And he tells this story. He says his symptoms were controlled and he asked if he could die at home. When his children were told about his wish, they would not agree to take care of him. Even after repeated discussion, they refused. Instead, they pointed to their father's suffering and the need to finish things quickly in the name of humanity. When the doctor refused, they threatened to sue him. As the patient insisted on going home, a social worker went to investigate. She discovered that the patient's house was empty and every piece of furniture had been stripped out by the family. 36% of euthanasia patients in Oregon report concern about being a burden on family and friends as a reason for choosing to die. Do you know, Lord McColl, he summarised the situation in the Netherlands like this when he spoke in the House of Lords in the UK. He went over there to check it out. And he said, the Dutch doctors told us we agonised over our first case of euthanasia all day. But the second case was much easier. And the third was a piece of cake. We found that rather chilling. There is empirical evidence, he says, to show that the current practice of euthanasia in the Netherlands is out of control. Professor John Griffith states that the system of regulation is not working. Doctors are not reporting cases of euthanasia that they are practising, and this is confirmed by the conclusions of the Remelink Commission, which found that the number of reported cases of euthanasia is as low as 18%. It's unbelievable. Professor Tio Boa, once a strong advocate of euthanasia in the Netherlands, in fact, publicly so, when it was being legislated, he actually reviewed 4,000 cases, and this is his conclusion. He concluded, he says, we've been wrong terribly wrong, in fact, to believe that regulated euthanasia can work. Some slopes are indeed slippery. See, when we say slippery slope, it's not just a logical fallacy. Slippery slope is something that is observed when it comes to euthanasia all over the world. Let me add this final statistic. Studies show that between 3% and 7% of assisted suicides result in complications, euthanasia deaths. And that includes regaining consciousness, vomiting, gasping for breath, and seizures. In fact, the longest euthanasia death recorded in the state of Oregon in the United States took four days and eight hours to complete. Now, why do I say that? Well, because the euthanasia campaigners always say roughly 3%, as high as four, as low as two, so let's say roughly 3% of patients who have terminal illness die in pain. And this statistic shows that euthanasia does not solve that problem. You will not get away from the 3%. They suffer dreadful and terrifying complications under euthanasia legislation and regimes as well. And you know, as I look at this whole dark business of euthanasia, and I have looked at it quite a bit, and it's dark. It's one of those really nasty and messy things. And you ask yourself, why so dark? Why does it become this deep, dark vat of just, well, evil, actually, uh, in which people kill and people die and people suffer? Uh, in which there's no respect for life anymore. Well, do you know, I, I think it's obvious. Uh, God is the giver of life. God is the nurturer. He's the sustainer. Uh, he is the one who loves and cares for life. 
Uh, he's the one who created life. And you know, death, by contrast, well, it's an imposter in God's creation. It doesn't belong. Death is here because of sin, because of evil, because of what the devil's work was. And so, do you know, if we really want to take that on ourselves, to change from that noble cause, that noble desire, to be givers of life, bringers of life, lovers of life, nurturers of life, if we want to give that away and say, no, we'll be angels of death, we will, in fact, by our own hand, be responsible for killing, for taking life, when we decide that it's worth doing. The end can only be dark. The end can only be black. And that's simply because of what death is. Um, I'm going to move on to womb transplants. The depressing news about womb transplants, actually. Uh, A group of UK surgeons have actually... uh, said that they're on the cusp of becoming the first in the world to implant a womb into a transgender woman. So that is to take a womb and put it into a biological man. Now, womb transplants are experimental. They've happened before. There's been 42 done in the world, and that's resulted in 12 live births of babies who have been carried in that transplanted womb. But now those surgeons, they want to make those wombs available to biological men who want to become women. And the reason, they say, is to promote equality. Firstly, to enable these men to conceive and carry children. And secondly, enable these men to express and consolidate their gender identity through gestation, which is, and I quote, I don't know what this means, a transformative experience. So evidently somehow intrinsic to the whole becoming a a real woman business. Um, And here are some of their other comments. They say there's no overwhelming clinical argument against performing a womb transplant as part of gender reassignment surgery. Traditionally, infertility has been an unfortunate consequence of the realignment of a transgender person's body with their gender identity. So if you're a bloke and you become a woman, you become infertile. That's what they're saying. Uh, The reproductive aspirations of the M2F transgender women deserve equal considerations to those assigned female at birth. So the reproductive aspirations of a man who thinks he's a woman should be treated exactly the same as a woman who is a woman and wants to have a baby. Subject to feasibility being shown in the suggested areas of research, it may be legally and ethically impermissible not to consider performing uterine transplantation on this population. Now, let me repeat that. Legally and ethically ethically impermissible to not consider putting wombs into men who want to become women. They actually invoke law, they invoke the Equality Act 2010 to make the argument that transgender people should not be subject to any forms of discrimination. And so if it's possible, they're saying it's discriminatory not to do it. Um, Now, after shaking my head for a while when I read this, um, the first question I asked, and maybe you've already thought of it, was where do they get the wombs? Where do you get a womb for a man who wants to become a a woman? And and it turns out that the answer is actually twofold. The first answer is that they get them from dead organ donors, as you would normally get, say, a liver or a kidney or something else uh, for for an organ donation. So you can imagine if you became an organ donor and then you died and your womb was put inside a guy who wants to become a woman, um, I don't know if there's special permission they're going to start asking or if that's just what you can expect as a result of being an organ donor if you yourself are a woman. But there's actually a second source, a second source of wombs. And, um, And get this. Uh, It says uh, the alternative donor pool, that's right, I was looking for that phrase that they use, the alternative donor pool, it says, would be women 
who have transitioned to become men and donate their wombs for this purpose. So there's a switcheroo. So a woman becomes a man, has her womb removed, and then it gets given and implanted into a man who's becoming a woman. And that costs £50,000. And yet cost is no deterrent because there's been a whole lot of transgender people apparently approach this team so that they can go in the queue for the experimental procedure. Of course, it's actually not easy because they've never transplanted a woman's womb into a man's body, and they're saying that presents all kinds of complications, but they reckon that they can do it. Um, now, I've had some surgeries in my time, and this, uh, when I think of this, when I think of a womb transplant, that's a tremendously invasive, um, particularly surgery in sort of the, 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 the abdomen, the thorax, the, the body, um, the, the trunk of the person. Uh, it takes a huge amount of recovery. It's, it's incredibly invasive. It, it's a lot of paraphernalia. It takes a lot of drugs. There's a lot of side effects. There's downtime and recovery. It takes ages. It's painful. Um, this is going to take a long time. They say six months for the implanted womb to heal. I would imagine it would be all of that before this person is going to feel well again. And yet I fear, I mean, given the queue of people willing to undergo it, uh, I think that's partly proof. But I also fear, given what we've seen all around us, uh, that this will only continue, this sort of thing. And it will only continue not just because of what we're seeing, but because Scripture says that it will only continue. Do you know in the first chapter of Romans, there's a, a series of things that it says societies can do. It says, firstly, if they decide that there's no God, and if they don't honour God, worship God, and give thanks to God, well, that's the first step to a whole series of things which follow. And the first thing which follows is that they will continue to do that because, of course, the conscience bears witness, uh, because, of course, creation bears witness, because, of course, we can't escape from the knowledge of God, the Bible teaches. You think of the prodigal son of the pig pen, right? There was no safe space in all the world where he could stop thinking about his father. He remembered. Uh, and it's the same teaching in Scripture all through. So if you say that God is not real, then you're going to have to go on denying God. You're going to have to actually live a life that shuts him out, uh, that makes sure that you continue to be busied with stuff that keeps him out of your knowledge and thinking, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1 says. Okay, fine. So that happens. So there's a whole pattern of life now. But of course that then creates a vacuum. See, who now is highest and greatest? Who is worthy of serving? Who's worthy of allegiance when there is no God? It's easy, right? I am. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshipped and served creature rather than creator. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche was the man, the famous philosopher who wrote, God is dead. But you know what else he wrote? He said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? That's exactly Romans 1 teaching. And that's exactly what people do. That's the human condition worked out in a philosopher's work. But here's an interesting point that relates exactly to the conversation that we're having. What is the truth about God specifically that Paul is referring to? And you know, yes, it's the truth of God's existence, absolutely. But more specifically, he's focused on something. He says especially the truth about God as the eternal creator. Go read it yourself and you'll see. And so I think that actually the ultimate expression of the truth exchange in a culture, the, the, the worst expression, if you like, the fuller expression, is seen in people dethroning God as creator and taking on that position for themselves, enthroning themselves as God creator. Who gets to say what is right and wrong? I do. I make the rules. I make the morals. I write the law. Who gets to set the standards? I do. Who, deny, who, who, who gets to define 
what is reality even? Well, you start to see that I do. You start to see that's where culture is headed. Who says which sexual ethics are good and natural and healthy? Well, it doesn't even matter what the research and the science says because I say what I want to do and I say what's right. But even more than that, we've got to a point where we say, well, who says what is a man and what is a woman? And whether I am a man or I am a woman, again, nothing other than me. As those doctors were saying, to align uh, their, their body with their gender identity. Because they now are creators. We are the creators now. And you know, these kinds of efforts which help us make believe that we have the power to be that creator will only continue because we know that that analysis of society is bang on the money. And that is unfortunately what we can expect to see. And we must hold firm to the truth that God is creator. And I believe proclaim the fact that God is creator, that God is real, because that is becoming just the antidote to all of this. As Paul said a very, very long time ago in a book called The Bible in Romans. I'm going to finish up on the school freedom bill. It's something that I've talked about before. It's something we've discussed in the past, but there's been some new developments. You're going to remember this school freedom bill, or actually it was variously termed the school discrimination bill or the sex discrimination amendment bill, whatever, introduced by Senator Penny Wong uh, last year in the Senate. And it was introduced allegedly to close the the loophole that allowed faith-based schools to expel students merely because uh, they identify as LGBT. Now, there's a couple of points about that. The first one is, as we know, there's no evidence that any faith-based school has ever done that, and all the faith-based, the Christian schooling movements combine to say they don't want that right, they won't use that right, it's not something that they do, it's in none of their policies. Uh, so there was that. So why all of the bluster and the hurry to push this through the parliament? Well, it turns out that the bill that was presented was far more than that. It did far more than prevent a school from expelling a kid because of their LGBT status. Actually, the bill went as far as to prevent any religious body that engages in the provision of education from subjecting someone to any detriment on account of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, that's a bit of legal speak that opens a whole Pandora's box of uncertainty. It opens these concerns and uncertainties. For example, what actually does detriment mean? Because that's a pretty broad term. Is there going to be litigation alleging that detriment has been done to an LGBT student because, say, the school taught biblical sexual ethics? Or because, say, the school failed to teach gay sex education, thereby excluding them and causing detriment? Or because the school refused to teach safe schools curriculum and therefore that anti-bullying stuff, you know, they're, they're left out, they're not affirmed. Is that detriment? Uh, or having behavioural policies enforced on the student body that reflect Christian teaching, is that detriment? Or uh, failing to have a transgender bathroom, not to accommodate the needs of a transgender student, is that detriment? Uh, there will be legal cases alleging exactly that, and the answer is nobody knows. Uh, my gut is probably in some of those cases, yes. Uh, but 
It remains to be seen. Subject of litigation in which religious schools will be raked over the coals, taken through the courts, challenged to change their beliefs and their ethos so that actually their ability to even exist is compromised. But I said religious schools. Is it just religious schools? It's interesting that the amendments proposed in Senator Penny Wong's bill uh, actually targeted religious bodies more generally. A religious body, does it mean a Christian school? Well, yes, probably. Uh, A tertiary body, a theological college, the teachings and the policies of theological colleges. Does it in fact include a church that runs a Sunday school? Is that a religious body conducting education? Uh, Does it include a church that teaches the Bible in its sermons? Does in fact this law reach into the pulpit? All of these were the concerns that were raised, very legitimate concerns that were raised about the bill. Um, And ACL gave evidence to the Senate committee that was set up uh, over the last couple of months to investigate this bill that that litigation is exactly what would happen. That if a religious body, especially a school in this case, wanted to include, uh, enshrine religious beliefs in the school policies and enforce them, and it wanted to teach Christian belief uh, in the school uh, community, then that would definitely lead to litigation and pressure. But here's the good news. Uh, The good news is that the committee reported on Thursday last week and it recommended that that bill be dropped. Uh, that it be dropped uh, and that the whole issue be referred to the ALRC for proper consideration. I'm going to quote Senator Ian MacDonald, who was the chair of the committee. He said, The committee is of the opinion that matters of anti-discrimination and religious freedom are too important and too complex to be dealt with in haste. Whilst the committee considers it necessary and appropriate to prohibit discrimination against LGBTIQ plus school students, it is of the view that this should occur, should not occur and this is the important bit, should not occur at the expense of the ability of religious educational institutions to maintain their ethos through what they teach and the rules of conduct that they impose on their students. Of course, that was the concern from the beginning. And, you know, all along, um, it was Senator Wong who introduced the bill and actually also Tanya Plibersek um, who, who argued long and loud for the fact that they do not support Uh, discrimination against LGBT kids and therefore this bill is imperative. But of course that's the very point on which everyone agreed. The government agreed. That's why the Prime Minister Scott Morrison actually instigated the process at all. Uh, Labour agreed, clearly. Um, Also the Christian schooling movements agreed and said, well, we're fine with you making that change, just don't make all these changes as well. But they held that line and said, no, no, uh, this has to go through because of discrimination against LGBT kids. But there was a revelation uh, this week, and the revelation was that though that, that the ALP members of the committee refused to accept a redrafted amendment that would have only and specifically closed the loophole that they said they were concerned about, that is the ability to expel an LGBT student simply for being LGBT, but left everything else intact. So an amendment that was precisely targeted at that very thing, and they refused su- to support it. Instead, they actually wrote a dissenting report saying that they did not support the government's decision to say that this bill should be dropped. Now, this is one of the worst attacks on religious freedom that you know, I've seen coming through our parliaments in a long time. And in fact, you know, we're right up there with the worst. And I'm very anxious to know, I'm very concerned to know, and this is a genuine concern, um, uh, what Senator Wong and... Tanya Plibersek really think about this. Um, It looks like they wanted all of the other stuff as well. And if they did, well, that means that 
Christian schools can barely continue to exist because litigation would whittle away pretty much all of their rights. There's an inconsistency between the content of the bill, the public statements that they've made on the record, and the conduct of the committee itself. You know, this whole issue of religious freedom is of crucial importance right now. Uh, We are in a time where the government has promised certain things on religious freedom, a Religion Discrimination Act, for example, which is something. It's not the whole picture. It's something. Uh, And, uh, you know, protection for charities, which, again, is something and not the whole picture. They promised these things. But these are not going to feature, I don't think, in the election campaign. The election campaign is going to be all about the headline vote winners like border protection, uh, like uh, like the economy. And we live in a time uh, that, that we've been waiting and waiting for these protections uh, whilst religious freedom is slowly eroded. Uh, and it's really important that we band together to ask for them. Uh, and ACL is going to launch a campaign very soon around five pillars of religious freedom, which we want to ultimately see enshrined in law. And those five pillars are firstly freedom of speech. Can we teach and proclaim and speak about what we believe? There are cases like Archbishop Julian Porteous and Campbell Markham which bring that into question. There's bills like this one which could have curtailed the ability of religious educational institutions to proclaim and teach their beliefs. Freedom of speech is the first pillar. Secondly, freedom of conscience. People should not be coerced against their conscience their sincerely held conscience that is grounded in their religious beliefs, they shouldn't be forced to perform abortions or refer people for abortions. They shouldn't be forced to conduct business for ceremonies and activities that they cannot in good conscience. These things really matter, and they harm people because they infringe upon... They they infringe their conscience and create guilt, uh, which is painful. Uh, Conscience must be protected. Thirdly, association. Are we able to have things like Christian schools that associate around a particular belief structure, Christian belief, and teach it, uphold it, live by it, uh, and other groups like that? Freedom of association is crucial. Fourthly, freedom from discrimination. Uh, We do need a Religion Discrimination Act that specifically says that a person shouldn't suffer detriment, uh, whether it be in their employment for being fired or whether it be loss of a professional accreditation or denial of funding or some benefit, simply because they hold to traditional Christian beliefs. And finally, fifthly, the fifth pillar is parents' rights. Parents must always have the ability to educate and bring up their children in accordance with their Christian faith, uh, and that should not be compromised and the state has no business denying them that right. And so those are the five pillars, speech, conscience, association, discrimination and parents. And all of these things ultimately in a free society like ours should be enshrined in law and they should specifically enshrine freedom around sexual orientation, gender identity, marriage and family beliefs because that happens to be, uh, and life as well actually, those happen to be the things that are of extreme controversy and causing all the trouble right now and the courts haven't necessarily agreed that they are intrinsically, necessarily religious beliefs, which creates all kinds of issues. And so as these things are increasingly undermined, we'll be lobbying hard, and I'm asking you to join us uh, and also be a part of the campaign when it is launched soon, and I'll update you well in time. And let me close by saying religious freedom is important. It just is. Um, A lot of people seem to uh, thumb their nose at the idea that we want freedom. It's not for us. It's freedom, in fact, for the truth. 
Um, you know, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. He said, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He says, pray for the governing authority. Why? So that the godly Christian life might be a life of peace and dignity. And then the very next sentence, he says, because God desires that all people everywhere come to a knowledge of the truth. It actually does matter. And a society where the truth is not free, fine, it's definitely a society where God continues to work because he always does. But the cost of that lack of freedom to others, to our neighbor, to all people everywhere who need to come to a knowledge of the truth is devastating. So please stand with us as we campaign for religious freedom especially through this election season. I'm Martin Niles, and that was The Truth of It.